I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture with me, Podrick Reedy. This week, Professor Deborah Lipstadt on her new book, Anti-Semitism, Here and Now. Deborah Lipstadt is Dorit Professor of Modern Jewish History and Holocaust Studies at Emory University. Her books include The Eichmann Trial, Denying the Holocaust, The Growing Assault on Truth and Memory, and Denial, Holocaust History on Trial. Her account of the libel case brought against her by David Irving, which was made into a film starring Rachel Weiss. Deborah Lipstadt, welcome to Little Atoms. Thank you very much. So, Deborah, you've written your new book, um, Anti-Semitism Here and Now, which, as the title suggests, you know, is about the, the, where we are with anti-Semitism. But you've written this book as an imagined exchange of letters between you, a Jewish student um, of yours named Abigail, and a non-Jewish academic colleague uh, named Joe. Why did you choose that format? I didn't start out writing that format. I started out to write a much more traditional academic book on anti-Semitism, citing statistics, citing recent studies, and it had no juice. That's J-U-I-C-E, not J-E-W-S. <laughs> uh, it just was boring. I was falling asleep mm-hmm. writing it. It had no oomph. It, had, it didn't capture the moment. And a friend actually suggested to me, try letters. As soon as she said that, first I had to figure out letters to whom. I didn't want, this book is not only for Jews, it's for Mm non-Jews, it's for anyone who cares about prejudice and extremism. So once I settled on Joe and Abigail, Abigail, who are entirely fictional characters, Mm -hmm. of course, influenced by my uh, students I've had and colleagues I've had, the reversal here is very often in books and in TV shows, movies, we get historical characters and false words coming out of their mouth. Mm. The author puts words into their mouth. Here I have two fictional characters, but everything that comes out of their mouth has been said to me, asked Uh of me, written to me. So it was a way of of conveying that. So there are amalgams of a lot of different questions that you've asked and discussions you've had over the years. Precisely. So, and so you said you, you set out to write an acad- more, a more academic book, mm-hmm. but what prompted you to set out to write this book at all? The first what was place. the mood? It's a good question. Well, you know, when, when academics or people who are trained to be, or in the academy, who, and part of our job, of course, is writing and research, when we see a problem we don't understand, a problem in our field, mm-hmm. we generally sit down to write about it. We study it, we research it, and we write about it. 
about, oh, I don't know, five, six years ago, even maybe a little bit more than that. In the United States, it was during the administration of uh, Barack Obama. I began to notice on right-wing websites mm-hmm. um, and some television shows, etc., expressions of extremism, expressions of racism, expressions of hatred, and expressions of anti-Semitism that troubled me. So that, this was this was just covered. This is this is this is before the Trump presidential. Oh yes, riot, absolutely. Race, well before, thought, well yeah. before. Um, and then uh, after that, I began to notice on the left. Um, a certain institutionalism of uh, attitudes, uh, not just towards Israel, but uh, attitudes towards Jews that were based on and derived from anti-Semitic tropes and and memes and Mm -hmm. themes. Um, And I began to wonder what's going on here, because I have always been one of those, and I've written this a lot, who has cautioned people who say, oh, anti-Semitism, it's so bad, it's getting worse. I would say, calm down. There are lots of good things. You're ignoring the positive. You're only seeing the negative. But I would say about five, six years ago, that attitude began to change, and even more so um, around the time of the Gaza War, 2014. Yep. I had a piece in the New York Times after the war about the anti-Semitism which had, which had emerged, not just connected to the war, but uh, independent of it and preceding it as well. And it got a tremendous reaction to the readership of the Times. It was high up on their most emailed, most read for mm-hmm. quite a while. My agent called me and he said, so where's the book proposal? I said, what are you talking about? He said, this is a book. Look at the reaction. I said, I do not want to spend four years writing about anti-Semitism or three years. He said, you've got to. You've got to. He pushed and he pushed. I wrote the proposal. The book proposal got bought by the publisher. <laughs> here's the book. <laughs> and here's the book. And you mentioned you saw that both on on the right, on 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 you know on hard right websites, but also mm-hmm. on the left around five six years. I, I recall certainly on the fringes of the Occupy movement, one mm-hmm. could see some very strange things. Not not even even beyond the, the usual Rothschild banker thing. Mm-hmm. There, there's a bit more of the imagery being used was very dubious, but. I suppose the, the book alludes to different types of anti-Semitism, or, or maybe the same type, the same anti-Semitism, essentially, but coming from different ends of the spectrum. Uh, and we'll talk more about that. But I guess, we, first of all, we should just define anti-Semitism or get as close as we can to defining yeah, anti-Semitism. Anti-Semitism, um, the, or the template, every prejudice, let me step back and put it in a larger context for just a minute. Mm-hmm. Every prejudice has stereotypes associated with it, whether it's a homophobic prejudice, whether it's a racist prejudice, whatever it might be, whether particular what particular group it is. For instance, in the United States, if you're going to have a racial prejudice towards uh, African Americans, you're going to use terms or make suggestions, well, they're shiftless, they're lazy, they don't work, they're not quite as smart, they get where they are because of affirmative action. Those are all, less someone in the middle. Those are all the stereotypes of the anti-Semitic mm-hmm. prejudice. The stereotypes associated with the, anti, with the anti-racist prejudice, the stereotypes associated with the anti-Semitic prejudice usually have three elements. Money, some, mm-hmm. some, something to do with finance, something to do with smarts, uh, achievement, but conniving, clever mm-hmm. in a conniving kind of way, and a outsized use of power, an ability to manipulate, Mm -hmm. to get more powerful entities to do their work. Mm -hmm. So that's, look for those elements. Yeah. Um, 
criticism of Jews or of a Jew or a group of Jews is not ipso facto anti-Semitism. Mm-hmm. Criticism of Israel is certainly not anti-Semitism. But when you get that context of power, money, and manipulation and, and clever and man- using that that uh, intelligence or those intellectual abilities to manipulate others mm-hmm. with a financial gain, you've got anti-Semitism. And all these tropes are things that we see going back centuries. Century, go back millennia, millennia, going back to the to the way the New Testament tells the story or the, the way the New Testament story of the death of Jesus, the crucifixion of Jesus, has been taught over millennia. Mm-hmm. But of course... It goes well beyond the church. Yep. By the 17th century, Voltaire, who's no friend of the church, is repeating these themes, but in a different way. Karl Marx, who's certainly no <laughs> friend of the church, uh, is repeating them. Um, you get uh, it in scientific, you know, pseudoscientific, evolutionary kind of anti-Semitism. Uh, it, it migrates well beyond religious context. Mm-hmm. It's, a, it's remarkably persistent. <laughs> it's, 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 got, it's not called the longest or the oldest hatred by chance. Mm-hmm. It's got very deep roots. And that's part of the problem. It's embedded in, and not just Western society, but it's embedded in society. And uh, people sort of resonate to it, even if they don't think of themselves as anti-Semites. Mm-hmm. They hear it, they resonate, they repeat certain things which are anti-Semitic. Yes, you talk in the book, um, or more rather Joe talks in the book about a kind, the kind of country club anti-Semitism that he came across as as a young man. The, kind of the casual background, That's I think right. what um, what Abrams called the anti-Semitism of the edges right. in, in the UK, con- in the British context, mm-hmm. just permeating. Yes, exactly. I mean, Joe, and this is a story that was told to me by, by uh, certainly a colleague and variations on it by others, by non-Jews. That you know, uh, they their parents belonged to country clubs or nice, whatever, not fancy, fancy clubs, but they lived in small towns with just a few Jews, and there were no Jews in those clubs. Mm-hmm. And if you brought a Jew as a guest, it sort of raised eyebrows. You know, these were people who would never do anything to a Jew, uh, harm a Jew physically, but um, they would say things like, "Well, he's a Jew, but he's okay." Mm-hmm. Um, look, it happened to me and less in the country club, but as you put it, the anti-Semitism of the margins. My first job out of university was at the University of Washington, a very fine school in Seattle, Washington, public university. And I was hired by the history department to teach modern Jewish history. It was the first time that they had an official position for someone in an area of Jewish studies. Mm -hmm. And I went, and it was a a match from the beginning. I loved my colleagues. I loved my students. My teaching went well. I got rave reviews. I was writing, et cetera, et cetera. One day after about eight months of being there, towards the end of my first year there, a colleague in the history department said, let's go have coffee. And he said to me, Deborah, I have to say something to you. I said, yes. And he said, when I heard that a Jewish woman from New York was coming to get this position, I was really nervous what we were getting and what we... He said, but you're terrific. You're wonderful. You've been such an addition. And I almost choked on my coffee because it was such an overtly anti-Semitic. Mm-hmm. It's what uh, a journalist in the States, Franklin Foyer, how he describes a philo-Semite. A philo-Semite is an anti-Semite who likes Jews. You know? <laughs> mm. Yeah, so they invert the same yeah, So the in same his mind, or the person yeah. at, the, at the dinner party who's going to say, at the country club, is going to say, uh, we just hired a new lawyer for our firm. Um, he's Jewish, but he's great. Mm. He's Jewish, but he's really honest. He's Jewish, 
but we can trust him. Yeah. Yeah. Or we've got, you know, we're, we're really great. We've got a Jewish accountant. Yes. We're right. really pleased yeah. we've got a Jewish accountant, that kind of thing. So I want to move quickly, um, from because there's so much to cover, obviously, the, from that that edge and, and people who probably would never think of themselves necessarily as anti-Semitic or, or bearing any prejudice to the very explicit uh, anti-Semitism contained in Holocaust now. Now early on in the book you you, you you address Holocaust now and you talk about your early career studying Holocaust and I think of course most people will know your name from your direct dealings with uh, with David Irving um, the Holocaust denier who sued you um, right. for calling him a Holocaust denier. Mm-hmm. But you mentioned in the book that when you first kind of came across this as a field, and, and there was this you know very straight out kind of world of Holocaust denial, which it was just and you, it was very easy to d- dismiss them as cranks. I, when I first heard about it, I laughed. Yeah. I said, "Who would take this seriously?" And then I watched it grow, never massive growth, but I watched it gain traction. And then um, two senior historians came to me and said, "Deborah, you really ought to study this. This is a you know this is a good thing for you to study." They they ran a research institute. Uh, we think you should you should take this on. And I said, "You take it seriously?" And they said, "Yes." So I I went and looked at it, and what I saw was that Holocaust denial perfectly fits the template of anti-Semitism I was describing for you earlier. Mm-hmm. What a denier will say after creating this narrative of it didn't happen without any evidence, without any proof, uh, when you would say to them, well, why would the Jews create such a myth? What's, quote unquote, in it for them? He would say, well, look, what did they get out of the Holocaust? They got a state, even though I think there would have been a state of some kind without the mm-hmm. Holocaust and most more people in it because they wouldn't have been killed. But that's beside the point. The general perception is yeah. a state. And what else did they get? Reparations, which is a fancy word for money. Mm-hmm. So immediately you've said to someone, you've given them a rationale which makes sense because it fits the prejudice. Mm-hmm. You know, if you said to them they got it because they're shiftless and lazy, you'd say, wait a minute, that's the wrong prejudice, you know, or they're effeminate. That's the wrong prejudice. Yeah. But when you say to them something that clicks, that's familiar, it, it makes sense. I recall um, years ago I covered the, the extradition case of a of a Holocaust called Frederick Tobin, mm-hmm. uh, which was... An odd experience because you had this kind of, but everything in his in his case um, that was being put before the court here, he was being extradited to Germany, mm-hmm. and of course, people like uh, Irving and Michel Renouf were turning up every day in the um, in the public gallery to support him. But everything hinged on giving a small tinge of respectability. Much, I think Irving was the master of this. The mm-hmm. kind of you know that that air of. I've done all this research, right? And I'm just disputing the numbers. I'm not disputing, right? I'm just, know, yeah. I'm just. Uh, well, you know, when when uh, David Irving sued me for libel, mm-hmm. uh, my lawyer Anthony Julius, together with James, his partner James Lipson, I like to say we decided on a strategy. They decided on a strategy, and I agreed. <laughs> you know? um, but we decided that we were not going to court to prove the Holocaust happened. That you don't have trials to prove World War II happened, mm. the Thirty Years' War happened, whatever war it was happened. But we were going to the court to prove that Deborah Lipstadt told the truth when she said this man is a Holocaust denier and because of that he's an anti-Semite and on top of it he's a racist and a misogynist and a liar. He's lying yeah. about it. So what we did was follow the footnotes back to the sources. 
And we found that in virtually every case we looked at, and we had a wonderful team of historians, including Richard Evans, Mm -hmm. then of Cambridge, um, Peter Longerich of uh, King's College, uh, Christopher Browning, a dream team of World War, of Holocaust historians. And they went, each time Irving would cite a source, they'd go back and look at the original source. And they found that in virtually every case they looked at, some sort of distortion, some sort of manipulation, some sort of change of the information, some sort of invention, a reverse of the date. So much so that the judge in his, I think, close over 300-page uh, decision calls him, I'm, I'm not quoting here directly, but calls him a liar, a falsifier of history, a manipulator of evidence, and a neo-Nazi polemic. And a racist and, and someone who engages in racism, anti-Semitism, misogyny. Yeah. So we were showing that there is no narrative. When you're talking about Holocaust denial, who has to be wrong for deniers to be right? All the documents that the Germans have left, because it's a heavily documented reports on the killings, et cetera. But on top of that, the survivors, the bystanders, the people who lived in the towns around the death camp or on the Eastern Front and saw people being taken off to be shot or taken into the camps never to emerge again. Thousands of historians mm-hmm. here in the UK, in North America, in uh, Israel, and all over Europe, you know, would have to either be part of the hoax or have been duped. And most of all, the perpetrators. Yeah. And not one war crimes trial since the end of the war has a perpetrator said it didn't happen. <laughs> There's no mm-hmm. narrative. Where are these people? Where did they disappear? Mm-hmm. Give me contemporary evidence showing that it's not true. But they don't have anything. So here's the, the conundrum. It's ludicrous. It's like saying the earth is flat and we're going to fall off the the edge if we go too far. Hasn't happened yet. Mm -hmm. Why do these people gain any traction at all? Why aren't they just laughed out of the room? Well, because they're drawing, my my argument is they're drawing on these stereotypes. They're drawing on these traditional, oh, the Jews did that. Well, maybe, of course, there was a Holocaust, but maybe it wasn't six million. Maybe it was just a million. Maybe they made it up. Maybe it's their fault. It's that yes, but syndrome. You know, yes, she was raped, but what was she doing in the street in the middle of the night? Well, she's a nurse, and she was leaving the hospital after an emergency. Oh, well, then she's a worthy. Mm. You know, the yes, but. The minute you deal with yes, but, run for the exit. So we're always on the cusp of it didn't happen, and they deserved it. Right. And we see this emerging again and again. You talk in your book particularly about about Orban's Hungary. Um, I think we've seen a lot in the past year about uh, in Poland, where where again the Holocaust has become incredibly uh, politicized. Right. The historical fact of the Holocaust mm-hmm. has become incredibly politicized, and that's something I find all interesting. That the Holocaust itself, but also more broadly, the idea, the whole concept of anti-Semitism. We're seeing this so much in Britain now. Right. Becomes politicized in a way that other forms of discrimination we don't. We don't. We still don't say that there is. You know, there's something up for debate about you know, whether whether gay people should be treated equally, mm-hmm. whether ethnic, other minorities besides Jews should be treated equally. It's, you know, we've we've settled now that in principle, at least, this is the correct way of going about things. And we certainly would never accuse members of a minority of essentially exaggerating or lying their own, about their own lived experience, but so and their own history. So why do we feel that we can do that with with, well, with Jewish history and Jewish lived experience? Right, you'd have to ask the people who do that why they do that. But there certainly are people who do that, and some of them lead opposition parties you know, mm. in your country. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, I think, partially, certainly speaking on the left, yeah. about those on the left, those who consider themselves progressive. Their view of the world is refracted through a prism that has two facets. 
a facet of ethnicity mm-hmm. and a facet of privilege. And, you know, fa- at prisms bend light. They bend your reality. Yeah. So they, uh, when a Jew says, I just experienced anti-Semitism, and what you said is anti-Semitic, they look at the Jew and they see a white person, which is ironic because the, those on the far right do not consider yeah. the Jews white. The guy who went into the synagogue in Pittsburgh was yelling, you aren't going to do this to white people, mm-hmm. you know, to the Jews. But they see white people and they see people of privilege, even, even though there are lots of Jews who are not of privilege. It, it, it doesn't matter. So they say, you could not possibly be a victim of prejudice. Mm-hmm. And me, you accuse me of prejudice? I absorb progressive values and liberal values with my mother's milk. My mother was a cable street or whatever it might be. So you must have an ulterior motive for accusing me of this. You can't be telling the truth. I know anti-Semitism, and I'm going to define it. I'm not going to let you define it. Something they would never mm-hmm. say to a, a person of color, to a gay person, yeah. you know. And I think it is, it is exceptionally dangerous. It's yeah. exceptionally dangerous. And it shows a certain internalized anti-Semitism. Yeah. I think we, I mean, we've seen this this week, well, just today as we're recording, actually. Um, there's been a lot of controversy, again, over the Labour leadership. And it, to not be conscious that they're doing this, I find interesting. In another very classic anti-Semitic kind of undertone when dealing with a, a Labour MP who's you know basically on the verge of leaving the party because her own Luciana Berger. This is Luciana Berger, yes. And and what has been put in front of Luciana Berger is some kind of quasi loyalty test. Of right. course, loyalty being the other the other classic thing. That's, that's, that's right. Show your loyalty to the party. Yeah. Look, uh, let me put this in the American context of uh, yeah. as a as American American woman. Uh, we recently had the National March in Washington, Women's March in yeah. Washington. The first one was right after the inauguration. The second was just a few weeks ago. Um, in the course of the past year, the leaders of that mar- of the march, the National March, mm-hmm. have engaged in overt anti-Semitism. They've also, even though they deny it, I'm not an anti-Semite, I condemn anti-Semitism, they have made common cause over the years with people who are overt anti-Semites. The Reverend Louis Farrakhan, head of the Nation of Mm -hmm. Islam, who recently said, I'm not anti-Semitic, I'm anti-termite. Well, what do you do when you have termites? Who do you call? You know, Mm -hmm. see under Nazis, you call the exterminator. Um... And they've been very slow and tepid in their condemnations. Uh, They refused until very recently when they listed the women who might be subject to prejudice to include Jewish women. They they have that same prism. Mm -hmm. They're seeing the world through that same prism that I just described. Um, I believe 120% in the aims of the Women's March. I believe that women have not been given a full uh, share of their Rights, I believe they've been discriminated against. They've been there's sexual assaults on women, et cetera, et cetera. But they're deal breakers. You know, if I were with someone who whose politics I agreed with, maybe on the climate, but who insisted on using the N word when talking about black people, I would say, I'm sorry, I can't march behind mm-hmm. you. It's a deal breaker. I think there are certain things that are deal breakers. And I think what we're seeing in the Labor Party is they're sort of, you know, uh, it's never a deal breaker. They can keep doing this, keep doing this, and then put the burden on the victim to say, give us a loyalty test. You have to show your loyalty. And if you don't show your loyalty, aha, Jews are not loyal. Jews are cosmopolitans. Jews are only loyal to Mm -hmm. their own kind. Meanwhile, meanwhile, the the people who are, you know, who are pushing this kind of, and, and are you know, openly in some cases like baiting Jewish people you know, are you know, they, they always fall back and they want, I'm a lifelong anti-racist right so I couldn't but, be but right, I couldn't right. possibly 
He thinks the gentle people do protest too much. <laughs> Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. You're listening to Little Atoms. Our guest this week is Professor Deborah Lipstadt. Um, we spoke briefly just about the the, the women's march um, and the controversy around the, the women's march, um, and we've been talking about you know, the US experience and the British experience of the Labour Party. I recall uh, I was in New York the week before Trump was elected, and and it's 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 kind of sounds like a slightly fictional setup. I was in a bar with a Palestinian American friend and a Jewish Irish American friend. And they were both saying, you know, they, they were both very nervous about Trump. And I remember particularly the, um, and they're joking about who was going to end up in, in the camps, essentially, <laughs> first. And it's a bit dire. Yeah, but <laughs> a bit. But, but, you know, only we, a we, bit. We, only a bit. <laughs> um, and I found it interesting, my, my Jewish American friend was talking about that he had, about the difference he felt between uh, someone who had traveled to Europe a lot, who had lived in Europe, and he had said he'd never understood the European Jewish, kind of the, the, the idea of you know, the, the mental suitcase under the bed, mm-hmm. and that growing up in America, he had never understood that until now. Essentially, um, so but the question is: Is there a fundamental difference between, say, the the Jewish Ameri- experience in the U.S. and the Jewish experience in Europe? I think there is. I think there is. First of all, Europe is the scene of the greatest genocide ever committed against the Jewish people, probably the greatest genocide ever committed um, in history, where one out of every three Jews on the face of the earth, not on the European continent, but on the face of the earth, was killed in the space of uh, four years. Mm -hmm. Um, Number one. Number two, virtually all European countries have a before 
before Jews had rights, before they were accepted, before they were allowed to settle. Mm-hmm. Um, in America, the re- yes, there were times where there were colonies which prescribed Jews from being full citizens and things like that. But very quickly, Jews are, are part of the of the fabric of American life. Um, yes, it is a predominantly Christian country, but there's no dominating religion in that sense. Um, I think it's a different kind of thing. For decades, I, you know, I've been coming to Europe for, for I don't know, since I, I was in college, but for the past, I don't know, 25, 30 years, if I wanted to find a synagogue or a Jewish museum in a particular city, Frankfurt, London, wherever, Milan, I knew once I found the street just to look up and down the street and look for the gendarmes, look for the police yep. and the police car. That's a relatively new phenomenon in America. Mm-hmm. Um, not uncommon anymore. Any synagogue since uh, since Pittsburgh, which hasn't seriously considered that, is seen as being derelict. But I think there is a difference in that. And more European Jews come from families, parents, yep. grandparents, who experienced this, experience. who thought they were comfortable and are finding they're not. Yeah. Yeah, you're talking about the um, looking up down the street for for the police or the or the fences. The one of the things that comes up in books is the looking for um, men in baseball. Baseball, and I, I talk about that yeah. right. I mean, there's people who wear kippot who wear yarmulkes who cover their head. When they come to Europe, very often will be, wear baseball caps. Yeah. So, <laughs> once I was I was, recently I was in Germany and I wanted to go to a particular synagogue because of the cantorial music they have there. It's a style my father loved, and I wanted to hear it. Mm-hmm. So someone was giving me directions. It was a little complicated, and they said, you'll get to a street. It's a long street. Look up and down for the gendarmes, for the for the police. He said, but as you're walking there, if you get confused, just look for groups of men in baseball caps and follow them. And I thought that was ridiculous. But sure enough, I followed them, <laughs> and they led me right to the synagogue. Mm. Oh, I want to talk a bit about right anti-Semitism and right anti-Semitism and Israel is is a fascinating topic because we see it and and you know, in the United States certainly but we also see it again increasingly in the rising populist movements in the right particularly in Hungary where Israel as an abstract almost or the the concept of Israel is seen as this is an ally against Probably the, the Muslim hordes, Muslim hordes descending yes. upon our borders. Yeah, and Israel is this great ally, mm-hmm. but uh, but simultaneously, Jewishness or Jewish, Jews in our mists, so to speak, are are a threat. Or, or you know, particularly obviously in Hungary, Soros has mm-hmm. become this this massive figure. Well, you have a, a, a wonderful sociologist here in this in, in London, David Hirsch, who mm-hmm. studies uh, left anti-Semitism. I think he's the one who said that Soros has become the House of Rothschild of the twenty first mm-hmm. century. First of all, Soros has been completely demonized and and painted in such anti-Semitic tropes. Um, what we're seeing, you're des- you're describing a new phenomenon and one that I find extremely disturbing, a sort of split. I'm pro-Israel, but I'm an anti-Semite. We see that in the alt-right, the far-right groups mm-hmm. in the United States. In the United States, the alt-right groups say, ah, Israel is the ethno-state that they created. Why can't we have an ethno-state here in America? Um, of course, I would point out to them, if I don't engage them, but that over half the citizens of Israel are not white. <laughs> you know, They're, they're a, a, a Yemenite and they're mm-hmm. Iranian, they're Iraqi, Egyptian, uh, Tunisian, Ethiopian, you know, but that doesn't matter to them. Um, but what we've seen from the government, of, from the current government of Israel is, you know, I guess it's realpolitik, that they feel they have so few steady friends on the international arena yeah 
that Benjamin Netanyahu will look at a Viktor Orban and see that a Viktor Orban supports them in, in international bodies and doesn't vote to condemn Israel, et cetera, et cetera. And he gives Orban a pass. Mm-hmm. But Orban has participated in and, and inculcated outright anti-Semitism. Yep. His use of George Soros, his depiction of Soros, his words about Soros play on all sorts of anti-Semitic themes, cosmopolitan, mm-hmm. you can't trace where his money is, you, can, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so you see this, this split between anti-Semite and pro-Israel, or you can, you know, and it's just, it's very disturbing. Similarly in Poland. Yeah. Poland in the past year passed a law, an amendment to a law, which made it uh, illegal to talk about the collaboration of the Polish state, Polish nation, and lo- very loosely defined. So you, if you talk about collaboration amongst Poles, mm-hmm. you could be subject yep. to criminal prosecution. Um, on Little Atom's website, if you, when they brought up that law, we, we, we ran an article criticizing that law heavily, and I have genuinely never had so many complaints. Really? Yes. yes. Uh, right up to the ambassadors, you know, public affairs people writing to me. Right. Well, was, I, yeah. I, I was <laughs> in <laughs> yeah, the same thing. Straight on it. Oh, I was in San Antonio, Texas. I was talking about it, and young Poles who had settled there came to me and said, oh, it has nothing to do with anti-Semitism. It only has to do with not talking about Polish concentration camps. These were not Polish death camps. These were German death camps built on Polish soil. Um, and once President Obama uh, slipped and said Polish concert, and immediately uh, he had his press secretary go down to the press office and say he regrets he made that error and he regrets he made that reference. So I said that to this young, this Polish woman who had settled in Texas. I said, you know, he, uh, the press secretary immediately with, withdrew and apologized. She, but he didn't come personally and do it. I said, forget it. We have nothing more to talk about. But the po- what the Poles have done and what Orban is doing too regarding the Holocaust. It, it's not the kind of Holocaust denial I faced in court with David Irving. It's what I call soft. That's hard. Hardcore denial. Mm-hmm. It's what I call softcore denial. Softcore denial doesn't deny that it happened, but it changes inconvenient facts. So, that, look, Hungary was an ally of Germany until March of '44, when the Germans, afraid that the Hungarians would flip sides and mm-hmm. go to the Allies because the Russians are approaching, invade and set up their own government. But Eichmann comes to Budapest with 300 men, and in the space of seven weeks, he deports a half a million Hungarian Jews, of whom over 400,000 are murdered at Auschwitz. You don't do that with 300 SS men. Yeah. You do that with the help of Hungarian gendarmes, Hungarian fascists, Hungarian railways, Hungarian citizens saying there's a Jew there, there's a Jew there, or are helping mm-hmm. in some way taking over Jewish property. Orban wants to, wants to project this image of we were all victims of the Nazis. It's an r- absolute rewriting of history. The Poles. Now, the Polish government did not exist, unlike Hungary, during the war. But still, and you had many Polish rescuers, uh, Yad Vashem yep. in Jerusalem, I think at 6,700 that it mentions. But you had loads of Polish collaborators. And in fact, the Poles often were so overtly anti-Semitic that the State Department just declassified. I mentioned it in the book shortly mm. before I finished the State Department released a report from 1945, so a few months after the war, where an American diplomat in Poland reported that Jews who had survived the death camps were fighting to get into Germany and trying to find ways to get into Germany because they were afraid of their Polish neighbors. Yeah. You know, <laughs> Germany had tried to to annihilate them, mm-hmm. and um, so to paint Poland and the Polish people strictly as victims 
which is what um, yeah. the Polish government is trying to do, or Orban to paint the Hungarians strictly as victims and not as really collaborators is a rewriting of history. It's a rewriting of an inconvenient fact. And of course, as we saw in, in the last French presidential election, both hard left and hard right suddenly again decided that take a similar stance that the Veldiver had nothing to do nothing to do with the French nation someone else did this if you look at the pictures from the roundup of July 42 uh, when Jews were gathered in Porta Valdiv the indoor winter velodrome um, and held in terrible conditions look for German officers you won't find Mm -hmm. any You'll see the uh, French police, they did the rounding up. They brought them there. This was all done by the French, and then the Germans took over. But this was with the full collaboration of the French, and it took France a long time. I think it was under Mitterrand that they finally acknowledged it, 96 or something like that. But uh, to those on the far right and the far left in France, enough of this politics of shame. We didn't. Uh, French children should be taught only pride. Look, the same thing in Germany. The AfD, Alternative for Deutschland, uh, the the far right party, talks about the Holocaust Memorial at the Brandenburg Gate as a scar of shame in our midst in our capital city. Mm-hmm. Well, there should be a scar of shame in your capital city, given to what happened, what your country did, yeah. what your parents did, what your grandparents did. I want to move slightly, maybe towards. Um because obviously anti-Semitism is the subject of what we're and you've talked about Philo 7. I want to talk a little bit about maybe something that's a result of, of maybe Jewish success rather than Jewish catastrophe. And something you, you touch on in the book is Jewish stereotypes, again, used in that almost philo-Semitic way, um, and particularly in American culture and particularly in American entertainment. You know, there's, there's a huge, you know, I think Jewish humor is so embedded now. Right. In people's perceptions of everything from Woody Allen to Friends to Mrs. Maisel, Mrs. Maisel, exactly, yeah, uh, which is you know, a classic trope of you know, what you, you know, what you described as you know, the Jewish American princess mm-hmm. kind of concept. Well, which she's I, not you know. really a princess; she's working hard, she's working <laughs> two jobs during the day. She's working mm. at a at a uh, department store and being abused mm. by her bosses, etc. And at night, she's doing the comedy routine. So I wouldn't, I don't know. But I guess the character starts off and then yes, her life, is, her off, life right, is thrown. Change, takes yes. a change, right. But right. That, that kind of, that, that, that's, again, it's such a familiar thing for so many people, for so many non-Jewish people. That, that, that again, It's something you can casually fall into. Is, it, is, is there, you know, that old thing where, you know, it's something going so embedded in culture that we become, we become insensitized I think it happened, yes. Look. Um, if you went to look at the uh, student body at Wellesley College or Vassar College, two women, then women's colleges, Wellesley is still a women's college, of the, uh, you know, uh, seven sisters, the Ivy League, so to speak, the, the, the feminine or the female variant of this of the Ivy League in those years, you would have found princesses, except they were white, Anglo-Saxon, Protestant princesses. Mm-hmm. You might have found a couple Catholics, but mainly white, Anglo-Saxon, Protestant, living on daddy's money, very comfortable, looking for the right man to marry who would give them status, and they'd go to the country club, and et cetera, et cetera. But it doesn't carry the same negative stereotypes yeah. as when it comes to Jews. You know, if you went to look in certain industries, the white shoe law firms, as they were called, you would find successful lawyers every place up and down, or you went to certain hospitals where Jews would not, could not get residencies, could not get appointments, uh, full of white Anglo-Saxon Protestants, white Anglo-Saxon Catholics in certain sense, but mm-hmm. even though it may be a contradiction in terms, but they <laughs> exist. Um, but when it's the Jews, then it takes on a nefarious kind yep. of way. 
um, the biggest banking houses in New York, the biggest successful Wall Street firms, were not Jewish Wall Street firms until recent. And what is a Jewish Wall Street firm? You know, it has mm-hmm. at its at its head people who happen to be Jews, but I don't have any. You know, they say Jews control the banks. Well, I'd like my ATM machine. I'd like my cash. <laughs> you know, I haven't gotten it. So it's and no one, no one ever says Dutch Wall Street right, firm or exactly, Scottish Wall Street exactly. firm. Or uh, you know, you can apply it to racism too. Take another stereotype. You know, when people say, "Oh, the the single mothers on welfare, milking the welfare system." Generally, that has a racist kind of, or it's used in relation to blacks. They're not pulling their weight or whatever. Um, The truth of the matter, in the United States, most of the recipients of welfare are white single mothers. Mm -hmm. So, you know, but it takes on that negative stereotype. You take that negative stereotype and you apply it to the particular group. So with Jews, it's for their success, you know. Yeah. Uh, I remember at the university, well, I wasn't there, but the, the university where I teach, Emory University, which now has a very diverse student body and a very extensive uh, program of Jewish studies and Jewish history, Jewish literature, et cetera. But a number of years ago, suddenly in the freshman class, there was a predominant number of Jews. And uh, the student newspaper went around asking people on campus, are there too many Jews on campus? I think this was in the eight, early 80s or mm-hmm. something, maybe 70, earlier than that, probably in the early 70s. So they went and they asked the Hillel rabbi. And he said, you know, I don't understand the question. Too many. What's too many? He said, there are three places where I think there can be too many Jews. Hospitals, cemeteries, and concentration camps. <laughs> What's too many? Jews are, are, are condemned for their success. Are there Jews I don't like? Mm-hmm. Are there Jews who behaved awfully? Uh, Harvey Weinstein and others? Of course. But I don't think they did it as Jews or when you say the Jews. The minute you put the in front of a minority group or a sexual minority, whatever it might be, then you're, you're on that slippery slope downwards. You end on a positive note. Um in a book on anti-Semitism, you managed to end on a positive, but but with suggesting that that the worst thing that can happen is the is the Jewishness becomes entirely defined by anti-Semitism or the fear of anti-Semitism, the perception of anti-Semitism, and an encouragement for for people to engage. Well, in you more internalize. Positive. It's very easy for a minority minority group to internalize the negative stereotypes. So let me give you a, an example from the Roma community, the known as Gypsies, though. It, shouldn't use, really use that term. Um, I was recently in Stockholm, and I met a young woman who, very successful, she works for a government-based a- entity that educates about the Holocaust, genocide, etc. She told me the following story. When she was 14, her grandmother very proudly showed her a notebook, the family notebook. The family used to be wanderers, you know, not settled. When they arrived in a town, you immediately went to the police to register. Otherwise, the police would come and seek you out and throw you out. They would sign your book when you arrived, and when you left, sometimes they would only say they would say you can only stay two weeks. Sometimes you could stay longer, but when you went to to leave, you'd go back to the police, and they would fill in the term. This family stayed here for two weeks, and nothing disappeared. This family worked on this farmer's land for a year, and nobody was disappeared, mm. or nothing was stolen. Nobody disappeared, and she said, "My grandmother showed me this book with great pride." She was very proud of the mm. fact we're good. And she said, even at 14, now she's the mother of her youngest is 20-something, but she said, even at 14, I knew that was wrong. So what I worry about is when a group internalizes the negative stereotype, Jews in this case, Roma, Sinti, 
Um, but more than that, and this is what I write at the end of the book, I write to Joe that he should not think of us only as victims. We're not just victims, even though we have been. And I write to Abigail, the Jewish student, that she should not make fighting against this hatred the theme of, the like motif of her Jewish identity because then she cedes to the oppressor control over her identity. She only feels strongly Jewish when someone is acting Mm -hmm. anti-Semitic. And more than that, much more than that, she's depriving herself of a rich, multifaceted, multidimensional tradition. And when I say tradition, religious, cultural, artistic, intellectual, all sorts of ways, communal, uh, however she chooses to define it. And that my hope is that even as she fights the good fight, even as she fights against Mm. those who would spread animus and hatred towards Jews, that she revels in in the tradition that is hers. Deborah Lipstadt's anti-Semitism here and now is available now and published by Scribe. Deborah, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. This episode of Little Atoms was presented by me, Padraig Reedy, and edited by Sky Redman. Little Atoms is supported by 8.9up and hosted by Acast. If you enjoyed the show, please do subscribe and rate us on iTunes, and even tell a friend. And remember to check out littleatoms.com for a full archive. Thank you for listening. This is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win, and support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode, and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. 